Hello everyone, this is your brief reminder that this conversation was recorded a couple of years ago and so may lack some references to more modern Final Fantasy news, but otherwise should be good to go for you. Don't forget that if you can't wait for the next episode, you can find 50 plus more of them all the way through the end of Final Fantasy VII on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash ffweekly. This is also a spoiler warning. There's not a lot in here, but I think there are some light spoilers for Final Fantasy VII for whatever reason and kind of early in the plot, but just so you know, in case you want to avoid that. And also, don't forget that if you're looking for more video game chat, I'm about to review Horizon Zero Dawn. Uh, I've got a list of my top 10 favorite video game franchises of all time. Other reviews I'm going to be doing soon, just talking about my experiences with games like Child of Light and Indivisible, things that really aren't in the Final Fantasy multiverse, along with Star Wars, MCU, DCEU, my Eternals review is about to come out, stuff like that, having a whole lot of fun, I do a weekly professional wrestling podcast as well, so if you're interested in any of that, I would highly implore you to check out my personal Patreon page at patreon.com slash dcproductions. Without further ado, let's get you to the show. Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kreisman. And I'm Ira Kreisman. And on this episode, we'll be discussing the music of Final Fantasy IV, composed by Nobuo Uematsu. There's a lot to talk about because this is, I think, pretty consensusly considered one of his first, if not his first, great soundtrack. It's got... A lot of pieces of music we've got to pour into. Of course, we're going to be discussing the Celtic Moon album, which was a rearrangement of a lot of the pieces of music from this game that came out in all the way back in 1994, which is, I think, about when we got it. And I've been listening to it ever since. It's still very good. We'll be playing a number of selections from that, also from the original sound version. There is a piano collections out there that I do not have, so we won't be doing too much of that, but a lot of this music works really well on solo piano. In fact, there's a lot of this stuff, and we'll talk about it as we go through, that's been rearranged in a number of ways. If I may read briefly from the official Wikipedia page, The track Theme of Love has even been taught to Japanese schoolchildren as part of the music curriculum. Additionally, the Black Mages have arranged two pieces from Final Fantasy IV, the Black Mages being Nobuo Uematsu's metal band. Uh, These are Battle with the Four Fiends, an arrangement of The Dreadful Fight, and Zeromus, an arrangement of The Final Battle, both of which can be found on the Skies Above album. There is also a lyrical version of the Theme of Love sung by Risa Oki, which appeared on Final Fantasy Prey, and a lyrical version of the main theme of Final Fantasy IV and Edward's Harp, sung by Risa Oki and Ikuko Noguchi, appearing on Final Fantasy Love Will Grow. 
there are also a number of pieces that have been performed over the years on live orchestral performances from the 2002-0220 concert to <laughs> Dear Friends. Uh, a number of those selections. I also do have those albums and we'll be playing a few of the orchestral renditions. That's the reason why for the first time in this podcast, a soundtrack gets an episode all to itself because this one is very much deserving. So that's two Final Fantasy songs that are taught to school children that we've mentioned now, right? Yeah, it's amazing how Final Fantasy is really built into the Japanese culture in a lot of ways. Something I'm surprised we've never talked about to this point is that it's not uncommon for some schools to give the day off when a new game comes out. They don't shy away from the fact that this game series is a cultural phenomenon. At one point, I'm sure we'll talk about Eyes on Me being a number one hit single in Japan. Not for video game music, just a pop single. Right. Yeah, and Aria, or Elia, Maiden of Water, and Theme of Love as introductory pieces for school children to learn being taught right alongside Beethoven and Mozart. Very natural thing for them. Are they playing it on the recorder? <laughs> I hope not. I'm sure <laughs> there are some horrible renditions of Maiden are. of Water on that recorder with those little trills just uh-huh. sounding terrible. <laughs> the recorder or fipple flute can sound really good, but when I was in third grade... It sounded awful. (laughs) It did not. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's get into our first piece of music from this particular soundtrack. I feel like we've got to come out of the gate and start with its first piece of original music. We've talked a lot about the prelude and the main theme, and though this game does make some additions to those, including, in fact, the first time we would hear... I previously erroneously stated that this edition came with Final Fantasy VII, but it doesn't. There's the extra line with the prelude uh, arpeggio comes in Final Fantasy IV. There's, you know, some additions to the Chocobo theme, but we've talked about all that stuff. It's first piece of original music, Out of the Gate, The March of the Red Wings. Interesting that it's the March of the Red Wings, considering they're flying. No, but they that, are soldiers. Would, right. It's, it's actually just called Red Wings. The track is okay. just the Red Wings. Uh, but it is a march. It's definitely a march, yes. In fact, I think it's purposefully... And sometimes this word has a negative connotation, but in this instance I don't mean it as such. Derivative from the Star Wars Imperial March. I think it's underlying, it's done by strings, the sort of bass line in this song, the snare drum behind it, is reminiscent of the Star Wars Imperial theme, in a good way. Definitely. I think another thing that it does really well is that it tells a part of the story. It underlines themes of darkness, of the Empire versus the Rebels, of the militaristic nature of this game. It tells us 
immediately some things about our main character and the kind of story he's about to go through. And I think in this way, it's a big step forward for Uematsu as a composer because I think the first three games he had pretty brilliantly set the mood, always being able to set the mood for an adventure, for a mystery, for some swashbuckling, whatever the game called for, he was doing that. But because, and and we've talked about this on the storyline side of things, there weren't as many characters with deep arcs or interesting things to talk about. We weren't doing character studies until this game here. Now he's got to reflect some of those themes and plots and story ideas in his music. And the Red Wings, I think, is the first time he truly successfully does that, where he doesn't just set a mood. He does that too. This this brings you into this world, setting a mood, but it also tells a story. It reinforces the core of the themes of the game, which is really powerful music making. Do you think that the Red Wings theme is also Cecil Harvey's theme? Because on the one hand, he is a militaristic guy. He's a, he's a knight of the kingdom. But then he revokes all of that when he becomes a paladin. Actually, he revokes all that when he decides not to execute Rydia. But at the same time, he still remains sort of a straight-laced, rule-following, I'm-the-lawful-good character type. So I wonder if you think that theme is emblematic of him throughout. I think it is. So to answer your question of why I think this can even remain Cecil's theme after he forsakes the Empire is because it holds within it the same things that Cecil does. The darkness is there, but over the top of it, we've got this soaring, triumphant, adventurous line befitting any main Final Fantasy protagonist. And I think... That over the top of it coming usually with a trumpet in, when it's you know fully orchestrated uh, over those strings that I mentioned that are a bit darker in the undertone in the background reflects Cecil in his dark and light. And you talked about him being both yin and yang. And I think this piece of music can work as his theme, one, because he doesn't have a, a specified other one, and two, because it has both of those elements to it. It's almost reminiscent of Terra in that way. Her theme becomes, it's not the Imperial theme in Final Fantasy VI, but it's definitely a March-like, and it becomes the overworld theme. And then it gets like leap-motifed into three or four different versions. So uh, I dig that. I dig that it can be both the Red Wings, Imperial March-type music, but also emblematic of a, a guy who, who embodies both light and dark, yin and yang so on and so forth. Right, there's another piece of music that I'm not going to play here because I think it's all right, and it, we've just got so many pieces that are great that we need to get to, but that is a reflection of the opposite side of what you were talking about there because the imperial theme is probably Kingdom of Baron, which is like the flip side of the coin of the Red Wings. It doesn't have that triumphant part. Its trumpets remain in that darker mode and there it's kind of an inverse of the red wings theme and it plays interestingly on some offbeat stuff that's fun but 
Yeah, so there's a lot going on, and those are the first two pieces of music that we hear, very militaristic, both marches. It sets that tone early on that we realize that the military is going to play a very important role in this game. Let's move into an area where this game really excels, and I was just talking it down a little bit in a way, and I don't want to do that ever because mood music is where Nobuo Uematsu eats. This guy destroys mood music, and this game in particular, as we mentioned, has a special mood, or at least the Celtic flavor that the previous games did not, making it stand out, and really very few of the future games would. So this soundtrack in many ways still stands out. One of my favorite manifestations of this is in a theme we've already played the Celtic version of, so even though I just set it up that way, we're going to play the original version of it just so we can hear the juxtaposition. But one of my favorite Final Fantasy main theme overworld themes Ever, if not my favorite, the main theme from Final Fantasy IV is fantastic. One of the points that I think this drives home is something you talked about in the art episode, but it's ethereal, ephemeral. It's carried by a flute and by a xylophone, and it sort of feels like galloping, despite the fact that air travel is playing a role in this. We talked about the juxtaposition between marching and the air travel. Here we've got a, a kind of a galloping feeling, and... I, I think this theme just, I've, I think it's just an awesome melody to begin with, and it can be always difficult to pinpoint what makes a fantastic melody, but what really gives it its flavor is that percussive xylophone. I also think it shines in that we've been talking about those first two themes and how they're, uh, they're marches and they're militaristic, but we've talked all throughout this game about how the characters often represent both light and dark, yin and yang. And I think that this piece of music then contrasts so nicely with the Red Wings theme. Uh, it's still in four, and it's still got a pretty strong downbeat, but it's not a march. Uh, like you said, it's almost galloping. It's one yin, a two yin, a three yin, a four yin. It's hitting all of those uh, note or all, all those beats. And so it, Again, it is more ethereal, and it is a nice counterpoint to what we've heard so far. In fact, that reminds me of something that I'm going to have to have make a liar out of myself here, because now I do have to play a little bit of the version from the Celtic Moon soundtrack, because <laughs> it goes into a new variation of the theme that adds exactly that, which makes it something that really you could dance to. So listen to that part of it.
Now that part kind of reminds me of the track that plays at the beginning of Boondock Saints. Uh, good stuff. Oh, that's a diamond dance, I believe. Correct. Uh, yeah, so... Yeah. Moving on in that same flavor, another category we've talked about before is town music, something Uematsu's been very good at. In this game, he gives us multiple town themes, not a different one for every single one. He would get there, but two that I think really stick out were still kind of in the era where the first one could just be called Town, and it, it has survived, I think, relatively well. Not one of my favorites, so I will play a briefer snippet of that, also from the Celtic Moon soundtrack, but after that, we'll hear a bit of Trojan beauty from the piece of music that plays when the party enters the town of Troya. And for it just existing in this one place, it really stands out and I think would begin to show Uematsu to himself that he could do something like that. That a and, and the people making the games, that a piece of music could play a huge role in making just one moment of a game that much more memorable. Again, ephemeral, ethereal, pretty, comforting, soothing, peaceful, all of these things, really nice melodic work, uh, and it's tough to break down pieces like that any further, so I, I think we can just move on to two more that fit into a similar category, but instead of being for towns, therefore, out in the wilderness, either the mist cave, in the case of Into the Darkness, or the land of the summons, or land of summons, is the piece of music. And both have, again, survived and are performed by orchestras. They're on the Celtic Moon album. I've seen them done on piano, on harp, on violin. You can find people doing them on YouTube. It's amazing how these pieces of music that are essentially just there to accompany a dungeon in a game 25 years ago, still popular to this day. Thank you. 
Not only is this piece uh, mood music for a dungeon, it's also a harbinger of the attempted genocide that is to come. Uh, it's almost a warning in its way. Don't, don't do what you have been ordered to do just because you're a good soldier. You know, you don't, you don't have to go through with this. You know, turn back. And the, the mist dragon, uh, or Rydia's mother through the mist dragon, is warning our heroes, our dynamic duo, this whole time. You know, turn back. And then again, uh, I've already said this, but you have to say yes, I want to press forward before you can fight the Mist Dragon, before you can enter the town of Summoners, before you can unleash uh, fire and fury upon them. So this piece is not just about the dungeon, it's also about the, the consequences of these characters and our actions. Yeah, and there's a bit of dissonance to it that help make it a bit more eerie. I think it's kind of a cousin to a later piece, The Phantom Forest from Final Fantasy VI, which nice. serves a, a similar role as you were talking about. It's there to accompany a beautiful place, but also to be this unsettling warning of things to come. This piece really reminds me of the music that plays in the Land of the Espers in Final Fantasy VI. They're both meant to be a sort of ethereal piece of music. Again, that's going to be our watchword this episode, ethereal. And it's, it's a, it conveys a mood of mystery, of, of the unknown, of, of perhaps trespassing into a place where humans per, uh, ought not. And it also perhaps lends some credence to the idea that certain realms span the multiverse. Uh, the, the phantom monster Eidolons of Final Fantasy IV might be closer related to the Espers of Final Fantasy VI if the Fey March and the Land of Espers are, are, more, are, are connected in more than just musical theme. I was going to say, you know, that's something we haven't really mentioned before, but should, is that I think one of the more compelling arguments for that theory is the way music is used throughout the series to tie certain things together. Final Fantasy XIV is really good about doing that, but we shouldn't get too far off on that tangent, but since we're talking about music right now and that particular piece, I think you're right that it ties the land of the summons to the world of the espers in more ways than just the plot would give us. There are a few more pieces of mood music I want to talk about at the end because they're a bit different. So let's take a detour for a moment into 
character themes. Oh, Another re- new entry for Uematsus. We've talked about there haven't really been characters who've needed these complex or even particularly interesting themes in unto themselves because they don't have arcs or themes or cores even really <laughs> they've been blank slates at times now we've got this cast of characters and they don't all get their own theme but a handful of them get some really good ones i think we've categorized red wings as standing in for cecil I want to begin in a strange place, and actually one, if you've been listening, you've heard a couple of times already on the podcast, so I'll just kind of fade it in and out as we're talking here, but Edward's Harp, which is a nice little piece of music. I like it because it's very simple, and it can be played, it's arpeggio and it's melody on a single line on a lute, which is when it's what it's really supposed to be played on, or a harp. It can be done on piano, but every little piece of it fits together just nicely, and it tells a simple story. It's gentle and unassuming, just like Edward. It mixes chords, bass line, arpeggio, and melody into one thing. It's pretty unmistakably Celtic, so everything about his theme, I think, works to underlie both his character and the softer thematic elements of the story. Absolutely. I think it does a great job exemplifying Edward for all the reasons you just said. I want to touch upon uh, a real-world cultural item for a moment. You said it could be played on the harp, and it's always struck me as a, as a harp piece, which is interesting because the harp is a strong Irish symbol. It's on the original Irish flag, and the Irish, as well as the Scots and the, the Nordics, are known for having warrior poets, that is, figures in their culture who not only excelled in the martial arts, but in the, in the linguistic arts as well. Uh, and I think, though Edward is exemplified by his uh, aversion to physical confrontation, he does fight with his words, he fights with his music, and I think, uh, therefore, a harp and a harp piece is uh, especially appropriate. And it is sometimes played with more instruments, and I think those iterations are pretty great also, but I do prefer it because I always think of him in the corner while his friends are off in the cave fighting the dark elf, playing it by himself. And there's something powerful about a single musician playing a single expression of themselves. To dramatically shift tones and go to the other end of the spectrum, the yin to that yang, let's talk about the twins Palum and Porum. I gotta admit, and there may be a disagreement here, not one of my favorites. It's pretty simple. It's pretty repetitive. It is light and bumpy and playful as it needs to be. It doubles down on xylophone, which is something I love and would love to see Uematsu do more of. But overall, this piece to me does not stand out amongst Uematsu character themes and 
is a little bit indicative of him still being in the early stages of totally nailing them. I agree that it's not as complex as a lot of other character things we will talk about now and in the future. But the Celtic Moon version has a really nice string part. I assume it's a violin uh, where it goes into... It's the same melody, but it goes into almost a, a dance waltzy kind of thing. We talked about it being highly influenced by Celtic traditions. And I think this is especially exemplified by that sort of violin part. It, it's very it's very much like the traditional Mary's Wedding, for those who are familiar with traditional Irish music. Um, and something we've talked a lot about on this podcast is how sometimes the core of an idea can be better than the execution of it, and that can be reason to go back and revisit that idea and maybe reiterate it, remake it. Maybe release some DLC content, whatever you got to do. But (laughs) this is actually one of those instances where I think the Celtic Moon album doesn't just bring this piece of music to an audience that maybe just isn't going to ever jive with chiptunes, but it actually makes the song better. It takes what was at its core an interesting enough idea, but it adds some stuff to it that wasn't in the original that allows it to go someplace, which I think that's oftentimes a problem I have with music when I hear on the radio. It happens everywhere. is that this song doesn't go anywhere. And that's a little bit how I feel about the original Palomon Porum. But let's listen to In the Celtic Moon, Where It Goes. I could absolutely imagine Palam and Porum at a festival in the town of my city a dancing uh, and cavorting to this particular piece of music. Yeah, it really sets the stage, and I know we've talked about it a lot, but I'm obsessed with this idea, and I'm never going to let it go. When we get to remake Final <laughs> Fantasy IV... You and me? Whether yeah, That's right. Whether it's animated or live action, just imagining that piece of music with the visuals it just fits and like i said it's not even one of my favorite pieces that's how good this stuff is thematically speaking of good thematically we've danced around this to the extent that i'm not even sure there's any more to add except to say that everything we've talked about times 10 i think uematsu's first great character theme. Now, Red Wings were sort of counting as Cecil's theme, but I'm talking about something that's only associated with the character Radio.
It is simple. It becomes more layered. I like that it does conclude and therefore kind of go somewhere with its simple idea. The flute lead, very soft, reflective of the character it's supposed to stand for. It grows in its strength and power, like the character it stands for. But it is, I think, one of the first times he really just put a melody together that any human being listening to would go, oh, well, that's nice. Yeah, I am, as I'm sure everyone is well aware now, loathe to list my favorites. I don't like the idea that I'm putting one thing above another when what I really want to do is analyze them for their similarities and their differences. That said, Rydia is a character close to my heart. Uh, I I have always empathized with her and her trials. Um, And I think this theme plays a lot into why I like her so much. It's such a beautiful piece of music, and I will often just find it somewhere on YouTube and play it when I'm at work or, or sorting my magic cards or whatever else I might be doing. This is a song I come back to again and again, and though I, I'm careful about such things, I would definitely list it as one of my favorites. That's about as ringing an endorsement as you're ever going to get. So moving on to another favorite slash best it's hard not to think of this song without thinking in terms of rankings at least in my brain and i know like that's maybe a bit poisonous but (laughs) as we read up top theme of love is the most celebrated piece of music in this game i think like the red wings it can stand in as the theme for rosa i think that's totally fair and There's not much to add. It's an obvious piece of greatness. It's a must-play at pretty much any live Final Fantasy concert. I could break it down, or we could just listen to it one last time. Let's conclude our character themes with another critique. I like to make an opportunity every once in a while to critique an unquestioned genius whenever I get an opportunity, you know. I'm sure he appreciates that. Yeah, Uh, I'm sure he's listening. If you're listening, we we poke because we love. But for someone who would maybe become known for 
character themes that are better for the villains than they are for the heroes, and the series in general had some great villains to follow. Golbez, I think, is a very intriguing villain. His piece of music, not so much. And <laughs> I wanted to bring it up because it fits into what we were talking about here. Very basic, very repetitive. There are a few other pieces that to me fit into this category, the piece that plays for Fabul, the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Zat, and even the airship theme, which ultimately I think may keep this soundtrack out of Uematsu's all-time masterwork greats. And that's a tough bar because I'm measuring him against himself, which is kind of not fair just because he produced so much greatness afterward. But these are a little bit more basic. I do want to play a bit of the Golbez theme because I think it's noteworthy for being his first real foray into using pipe organ music to accompany the main villains. It's basic, doesn't go much of anywhere, but he would eventually figure out what he was starting to toy with here. Yeah, it's fine. I thought I might disagree with you a little bit, but uh, no, I'm not gonna. It it serves its purpose, but it's not as exciting as One Winged Angel or Dancing Mad or even just Kefka's regular theme. It, for that matter, it's not as exciting as as a, another haunting theme that will come a little bit later. Yeah, there is a reason I categorize the other pieces of music as mood music and not as background music. And this feels more like background music. What does not feel like background music pretty much ever in Final Fantasy games is the battle music. And in this one, we got four pieces of awesome Uematsu driving excitement, as we mentioned earlier, two of which would be reinterpreted in heavy metal. And you can find metal versions, rock versions of all of these songs, a ton of them out there. And the bassists in particular have a lot of fun playing these songs. Uematsu seem to have realized in the particular composition of this battle music, what he could do with the power of the Super Nintendo and the speed and the exhilaration he could provide. And I think the bass battle music in this that starts with the traditional famous Final Fantasy bass line is probably my favorite iteration he ever did with that bass line underneath it. Yeah, I dig it. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard not to. It's infectious. It's a lot of fun. It's got a phonetic pace. There are a lot of notes in the verses. It's got a sweeping Uematsu chorus. There's like this call and response between the trumpets and the strings. It's just a lot of fun. And it's actually something you would see him establish as a theme. These songs don't really have traditional verses and choruses and bridges, but sometimes that language makes it easier to understand the structure. And in the case of a lot of his battle music, you'll hear just an insane amount of notes and excitement in the verses that get the blood going, that get the adrenaline going, that remind you that you're in the middle of a battle. And then there's this chorus with this sweeping uematsu, almost sounds like the main theme of a Final Fantasy game, or even the main Final Fantasy theme that comes over the top of the battle music, that kind of reminds you that you're on this grander adventure. And it's a trick he was able to pull off multiple times in this game and then multiple times in multiple games to follow. It's pretty crazy how many times he could reinterpret this idea, including for the primary boss battle music in Final Fantasy IV, cleverly titled Battle Two. There's a fun little trick that each of these songs employ. It's always been one of my favorites in music. Lots of people do it. If you've never heard it before, after this, you'll hear it everywhere now. But it's when a grouping of notes is played one way, and then that exact same grouping of notes is played, but in a slightly different way. Either the rhythm has changed a little bit, or it's a different place in the measure, a different part of the song. And he does that a bunch of times. It occurs in all of these songs, probably my favorite in our next one, The Battle with the Four Fiends. My favorite bits of that piece, and I'm no musical theory dude like, like some people on this podcast, but those, I, I can't tell if it goes into three or if they're triplets, the umpapa, 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 that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. Uh, I believe those are, are triplets, but yeah, it, it's, it's a great rhythmic dynamic and the success of those songs is mostly based on those rhythms and so is the next one he inverts the traditional bass line which immediately puts you into this crazy place for the final battle it reminds me a lot as it evolves of what 
they would do later and it's hard to tell because it was a joint effort who was responsible for what on the chrono trigger soundtrack but the baseline in this reminds me a lot of the battle with lavos at the end of chrono trigger but the final battle music is really a combination <coughs> of the two sides of the game we've talked a lot about yin and yang and dark and light of course there's fantasy and science fiction in this game We'll talk a little bit about some of the music that accompanies the more science fiction-y parts in just a moment. But at the very end of the game, the battle music has all of the thematic elements we talked about of the early battle music. And of it even has the first few notes of the main theme. It begins in the exact same way, but then goes off on this crazy tangent, as you can hear right now. So what do you think, Mr. Priestman? Is this a good game for battle music? It's pretty fantastic, especially when you just break it down to its core. For the time, you know, a lot of the sounds are the same. A lot of it, you know, it just sounds like Super Nintendo battle music. Great Super Nintendo battle music. When you start to interpret it and play it on different instruments, I think you start to see the differences between those pieces. I will still say, though, that as great as they are, they're similar enough to each other where I think in further games, Uematsu would get to the point where he was so good at battle music, he could compose completely different types. The boss battle music in Final Fantasy VII, the famous very different from One Winged Angel. Let's move now into some of those aforementioned science fiction-y pieces that accompany the latter part of this game. One of the things that has always impressed me so much about Nobuo Uematsu is his ability to shift tone when the character or story calls for it. And this was really asking him to step into a new arena, do something that he had never done before to go along with the entire team doing something they had never done before. And in the pieces, another moon and a lunar whale, you can tell he's using completely different instruments from the entire rest of the game. None of these tracks are on the Celtic moon album. These, <laughs> yeah, I can't uh, imagine why. These know, pieces are weird, dude. You can say they're, it. they're, they're odd. 
they're odd. They're electronic. They're purposefully, I think, off-putting in some ways Mm -hmm. because it was trying to really put the player and the characters in, well, a literally alien place. Yeah, so I guess he can do just about anything. Speaking of which, let's talk about the other two pieces of music I feel are standout works from this. You've alluded to one of them already. In fact, we talked about it during the plot because that's how integral it was to remembering a specific scene. And while you could maybe categorize it as battle music because it plays during a battle, to me, like the fact that it's a fight is secondary yeah. to the fact that it's a scary scene. We were talking earlier about Uematsu being able to evoke an extreme heightened sense to one particular moment with just the right piece of music. And the Kalkbrenna may be the best example of that because hearing just a few notes of it to this day can send shivers up my spine. Final Fantasy doesn't really do jump scares. The only one I can think of is in Final Fantasy 15 when you're going down in that cave and like goblins start, you're like squeezing through this little crevasse and then all of a sudden goblins are coming right at your face. That's really the only one I know of. Generally when 
Final Fantasy does horror, it's more understated. The Calcabrenas are creepy because they're these disjointed dolls that come to life and then like merge into one. And this theme's got a lot to do with it. The other uh, sort of scary horror moment that I can think of is in Final Fantasy VII. When you, Sephiroth doesn't jump out at you, you just see this blood trail up the, up the stairs and into the big office, and then the present of Shinra has been impaled, right? They don't mm. do the, the screechy jump scares. They do the subtle, make-you-squeamish kind of horror. Yeah, and the music always plays a big role. In each of those scenes you just mentioned, I can think of the music that accompanies it. And this was the start of that tradition, and man, is it unsettling. But really good stuff. The It's a waltz, it's in three, it gives it that circus feel that you're at a haunted circus, which what's more horrifying than that? And of course there are <laughs> dolls you know, involved. It's just hitting on some classic horror tropes, but doing it in a new way, whether it's played on just the pipe organ or a violin. Or, there's no way to play it and have it not be creepy as hell. And let's finish on a piece of music that I truly believe is a masterwork. And I'm maybe totally making this up. This may be a silly thing to even have a distinction about, but I think there's a difference between a masterpiece and a masterwork. Okay. A master, a masterpiece to me is a lot more subjective, and there are a number of pieces of music we've already discussed that could be considered masterpieces. Or the entire soundtrack maybe could be considered a masterpiece. A masterwork needs to have a bit more complexity, a bit more craft to it. It needs to be challenging in its medium a little more than just being exceptionally pleasant. And I think Uematsu before this piece had come up to that line, maybe pushed at it a couple of times. I think with the piece within the giant, he really started to show himself what he could do. I think it was probably partially him getting used to the technology, him being able to do more complex pieces that he just could not do before. But this was a real challenge of putting together fantasy, science fiction, and challenging rhythms, orchestral and electronic. He's really playing with some advanced musical theory here and I think we see hints at what would be in my estimation one of the best pieces of music he would ever compose which would show up in the next game the battle on the big bridge I think we we sort of talked about songs being cousins earlier or I think these two songs are family and it's just amazing to me what he was able to accomplish to set the tone for this scene of our fantasy characters walking around inside of a giant robot filled with computers.
Project Majestic Mix back in the early aughts, we've mentioned them before. They came out with a few albums, one of which, the first of which was called uh, Tribute to Nobuo Uematsu. And they do a version of Within the Giant that is killer. Uh, I'm sure you can find it somewhere on the internet if you are so inclined. Uh, a lot of the people who worked on those Project Majestic Mix albums would go on to work uh, on various tracks and albums with uh, OC Remix. So if you're familiar with video game remixing, but you haven't heard this version of Within the Giant, you owe it to yourself to take a listen. To go back to my old standby, if we were to create our adaptation of Final Fantasy IV, I think that version is one. I'd have to reach out to those guys and say, hey, can we have this song? Or how much How much we got to pay you to have this version of Within the Giant accompany right. this scene? Because I think it does a great job of being... what All of these pieces of music did, I think, better than his first three soundtracks. And what this game did better than the first three games is being cinematic. Really putting together that feel of extreme wonder and adventure. I don't know. How, how is it different than the first three? Am I making that up? What it, What is cinematic? What is it? You know what I mean? More. Yeah. I, I think that's a, that's a good word for it. It puts you in mind of a bigger world. I mean, final fantasies one, two, and three all have their own worlds. That That's fine. They do a good job with their worlds. But they are the worlds are less of a character. In Final Fantasy One, it's it's your basic fantasy world. In Final Fantasy Two, there have been demons released from hell, sure, but you don't go to hell, not really. In Final Fantasy Three, the world is more of a character because it's been destroyed and its uh, its earth has already rotted and its seas are continually raging. But it doesn't really go beyond that. Final Fantasy IV, though, it has the overworld and the underworld. It has the militaristic components and the ethereal components. It's got these characters who embody and exemplify light and dark and yin and yang. So I think you're right. I think the music lends to and bolsters the cinematic quality. I like that. That's a good word for it. it it's a bigger world. It's a bigger story. They're bigger characters, and so they need bigger themes and bigger moods and i also think just like the games themselves this was a huge step for uematsu in the direction of him will often say in music find your voice finding your own voice and like the early games i think uematsu was paying tribute to his inspirations you know the kind of music that would go along with a european fantasy tolkien inspired Dungeons and Dragons inspired type of world. Now that, as you just said, they're really creating their own mythos, their own lore, their own ideas that are big enough to stand on their own, he needed to start creating pieces of music that didn't sound like Renaissance Europe, that sounded like there's a the Celtic flavor we've talked about, but this sounds like Nobuo Uematsu. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. And thanks to everyone who's reached out to us via social media. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. 
Join us next time when we wrap up our conversation of Final Fantasy IV with all of our final thoughts on one of the greatest games in one of the greatest franchises of all time.